It is good to see you, and I think uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, people we haven't seen in a while. We're seeing some newcomers here, and maybe you're here and you're new to church, or you're not even sure if you believe in God. You're not even sure if you're a Christian. Um, someone invited you, and I want to say that we're glad you're here. You're very welcome, and I think one thing that we all have in common, whether you're a Christian or not, is that all of us are on some kind of a search. We're all searching for different things. And one of the things that we have in common is I think all of us are searching for some kind of spiritual experience. We're not just physical beings. We need food, okay, because we're physical beings. We're uh, relational beings. We're emotional beings. But the Bible says that we're also spiritual beings. And that's one reason why I think we long for spiritual experience, And it's interesting when you read like sociology books from like 20, 30 years ago that says as the rise of science, scientism, okay, as that sort of becomes our ultimate um, fact checker, then we're going to start to see the decline of organized religion. We're going to start to see the decline of sort of like, you know, like mystical experiences. And you look at that 20 years ago and you can sort of laugh at that because if you actually look at the data... Maybe we don't want to say we're religious. Maybe we don't want institutional religion, but we do want spiritual experiences, and you actually see a lot of new religions popping up. You see so much more interest in the occult. How do you say Occult? Occult? (laughs) O-C-C-U-L-T. Occult? I always read it. I've never said it. Okay. Uh, Occult. I was at Balboa Park in San Diego the other day, and I was, it was just so interesting to me where I see like 20, like it was probably like 15, 20 young people, and they have, and um, the word I thought of was hippies, right? They're, they look like hippies, and I realized why afterwards they had uh, healing crystals, and they're rubbing that on themselves, and they're chanting certain things, and I, I sort of went and looked it up, and it's because it was that type of movement was rooted in the hippie movement, <laughs> But I was like, wow, it's so interesting that the young people, they couldn't have been more than their early 20s. They're gathering together to have some kind of mystical experience. And we all want that. And we all look for it in different ways. Whether it's through religion, we all want to say it's, we're not religious, but we're spiritual. That's sort of the common phrase. And that's right. Whether it's through, you know, nowadays it's all about uh, meditation. You look at Oprah, you look at different TV shows, it's all about meditation. We're looking back to New Age movement or Eastern religions, and there's a lot of interest in that. And maybe it's not even a religion. Maybe it's just uh, relaxation techniques, or you're looking for, you love to travel because you're looking for not just fun, you're looking for some kind of spiritual experience. Maybe it's, that's why we work out. We're obsessive. We like to run. We want that runner's high. We have certain diets. We have to have, you know, we're religious about that. We may not call it a religion, but there's something spiritual about it. We're all after that feeling. Maybe it's through counseling, the rise of counseling and psychology and self-knowledge and self-awareness, deep encounter with our true selves. You've got to learn about yourselves. You've got to take all these tests and Enneagram and all these different things. Maybe it's through sexual encounters where it's not just a physical thing. You're looking for a spiritual experience. And nowadays, even if we say we're not religious, we mix elements from different faiths and different ancient traditions into an individualized spiritual practice. And 
whether or not there's organized religion, say Christianity, you see it in like Norway, you see it in different countries where we're going back to certain like different types of religions, I think because there's a vacuum in our souls. There's an emptiness in our souls. We want to have some kind of intimacy, some kind of experience, some kind of mystical knowledge. And I'm going to argue today, I'm going to argue from the Bible that so much of that emptiness, so much of that longing can be fulfilled through the practice of prayer. Prayer, where we can have a spiritual experience with the Father because of Jesus Christ, intimacy with the infinite. We don't need religion, but so many people are trying to go through the back door and they're all looking for experiences, mystical experiences, and your technology doesn't satisfy that. New scientific knowledge doesn't satisfy that. We want soul experience. And I'm going to, again, say it's right here. It's in the Psalms, and it's in the Lord's Prayer. This is the key. And so I want to invite you to sort of journey with me as we search together for what we were made for, spiritual experience. This is the second part of a sermon, uh, a series I started last week. Last week, we talked about reading the Bible supernaturally, and that's hearing it in a way in a spirit-inspired way, hearing the word of God. We believe this is the Bible, this is the word of God, this is God's holy word, this is divine, and we need a a miraculous experience. We need the enabling of the Holy Spirit to truly hear it. Okay, Today, we're talking about praying supernaturally or how to pray supernaturally. And so for note-takers, I'm going to go over four different points. Okay, Four different points. The first point, the basis of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the learning of prayer, and the difficulty of prayer. The basis of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the learning of prayer, the difficulty of prayer. Okay? And so let's start with the first point, the basis of prayer. Okay? And Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 through 9 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, and we'll stop there. And Jesus here is comparing two different approaches, two different bases by which we can pray to God. There's the pagan or Gentile approach. Okay, same word there. Okay, and typically when we think of like pagan or Gentile, if you use pagan, we're thinking irreligious. But notice here, it's talking about religious people who pray. And then there's Christian prayer. What's the difference? For Gentile prayer, they think they will be heard. Why? For their many words. And Jesus is like, don't be like them. Our Father doesn't care about many words. He already knows what you need. In contrast, Christians come to God and we pray, our Father in heaven. And already there's a foundational difference between how Gentiles and Christians pray. We'll just say non-Christians and Christians pray. Pagans... Gentiles come on the basis of their performance. That's like the implicit assumption here, isn't it? I'm going to do something, and therefore you're going to have to hear me. And that was actually very common in that day. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, the first four verses of that, the part we never pay attention to, talks about how 
they would uh, bang gongs and they would bang cymbals and they would go and Gentiles would go and they would try to attract God's attention by doing all these acts, putting on a show, putting on a spectacle, banging gongs and cymbals so that the gods would be impressed. In other words, they felt if we do our job, if we perform, then he will hear us. And Jesus is like, don't be like them. Christians, on the other hand, it says, come to God on the basis of who God is and who we are to him. He is our father and we are his children. This is absolutely foundational. Why? And I'm going to argue this is the basis of supernatural prayer. Prayer can be done, and I'm generalizing here, okay, but I'm sure there's different gradients to this, okay, but prayer can either be done on the basis of a business relationship or a family relationship. You can approach God on the basis of family terms or business terms. When we're talking about family uh, business terms, consumer relationships, where I have a commodity, it's about what I have. There's going to be an exchange. It's, an, it's a performance. It's conditional. You come to them on the basis of you have something for them and they have something for you. Family relationships, though, on the other hand, we come with the implicit assumption that it's permanent, it's committed, it's about who I am to you. It's about God being our Father. And there's something different, very, very different about these two approaches. Immediately, some of us, when I talk about like family terms, maybe we come from a broken family, but even broken families, I would say, support my point. Because let's say you, you're saying in your mind, I don't agree, you know, my family's jacked up, we're not like that, okay? But even the messiness of our broken families shows there's something unique about our families. Because you have, maybe you have a relationship with a brother or sister or a parent or son or a child or whoever it is, where if they were not your family, you could have disconnected yourself from them a long time ago based upon their hurtful behavior or attitudes, whatever it is. Why do you stay in relationship with them? Because he's still my brother. He's still my kid. That's my dad. And of course, there's extremes, but it's not based on their performance that you love them. It's based upon who they are. Imagine there's a couple different ways you can live in a house, okay? And Rand's house sort of messes up this illustration, okay? You'll see why, okay? There's two main ways to live in a house. You could be a tenant, okay, where I'm a landlord, okay? I, I, I manage a property on behalf of my family, okay? It's basically my mom's property. I'm like the landlord. I hate being a landlord. I hate it. It's the worst, okay? I have a, ta- a tenant. He lives in my family home. He pays me rent. He has certain responsibilities to respect my property, but I have responsibilities to him as well. And I can have a good relationship with him as long as he pays the rent and respects my property and then I do my job, I fix things, he calls me, I have to fix things, I have to send someone, and there's an exchange of goods and services. But my relationship with him is very superficial. It's mechanical, it's conditional. You perform, you accept it, you can stay in my house. On the other hand, I have family relationships. People who live in my house, by my grace, okay? They suck out my resources, okay? They don't pay me rent. I'm not talking about my wife, okay? (laughs) I'm talking about my kids. I have two kids. I have a son and daughter, three years old. And by the way, uh, Micah's birthday is today, and so show him a lot of love, okay? 
And they get to stay in their house, not um, in this house, not because of their performance, but because of who they are. The basis of our relationship, do you see, when I compare like a landlord and tenant and a father and children, is radically different. It's unconditional this way. It's not about their doing, it's about their being. They're my children. Everything is different. I accept them, and then, therefore, they perform. And we can either come to God on the basis of Him being our landlord and come to Him on business terms, or you can come to Him as Father on a family basis. And the deeper the basis by which you have with God, the deeper the interaction will be. Do you hear that? The deeper the basis by which you have with God, the deeper the interaction will be. My children, based upon our relationship, have a certain right to do certain things that other people cannot do. They come and they grab my wallet all the time. And they, she takes out my money and she says, give me money, right? And then I just laugh. She's allowed to do that. You are not allowed to do that. My children can do that, okay? A stranger can't come up to me on the street and say, give me your wallet, Okay? We don't have that deep of a basis. Give me your backpack, whatever it is. The deeper the basis by which we come to God, the deeper the interactions will be. And plenty of people in the church come, we pray, we recite our Father, but you're not actually going to Him as your Father. Plenty of religious people approach God on the basis of business rather than family. And what are we doing? We're doing pagan prayer. Gentile prayer, non-Christian prayer, a pagan relationship to God. Many people pray that way, and that's so different. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Just say, our Father. Our Father. When you pray, on what basis do you think you'll be heard? Why do you think you'll be heard? Is it your performance? Or is it who you are to him, your being, your identity, your status. The implicit assumptions that you make when you approach God will determine the depths of your prayers. And we fall back and forth into this. Even my daughter can fall into this. I'm like, you're my daughter, but she comes up to me like on business terms. You know, we try to teach our children to say please. And now she's so good at saying please, the moment she says please, she puts out her hand and she thinks I'm going to give it to her. And so me and my wife are constantly saying, Tabby, just because you say please doesn't mean we have to give it to you. We could still say no. But she's basically saying, I've done my part. Now you do your part. You're obligated to me now. And I'm like, no, I'm your dad. Don't come and try to like manipulate me into obeying you. I don't have to obey you. I'm 33. You're three. Okay. <laughs> you obey me. You just, if I say no, then I say, Tabby, just say Okay, daddy, right? And you trust me because it's not that simple with us. I'm your dad, not your business owner. Don't come up to me saying, I paid my rent. Now do your job. Landlord or father, business or family, what's the basis of your prayers? Jesus says, don't come like those religious people. And again, he's talking about religious people. They pray. Instead, come like a Christian and say, our father. I'm going to keep using my kids, and some of you are like, oh, I'm tired of pastors using their kids as examples. But, and I felt that way too, but I just, it's such a good example, right? <laughs> okay. One time I was at uh, Target, and uh, I'm going to keep throwing my daughter under the bus. Uh, 
I was at Target, and I was sort of just walking around, and my whole family was there, and I hear, I hear, uh, I hear these words. She's like, uh, it's, uh, I hear these words from the distance, Pat, Pat, Pat. And I'm like, who is that? And it's Tabby. It's my daughter. I'm like, don't, you don't call me Pat. And she hears my wife, call, my wife calls me Pat, and so she finally figured out, oh, he's Pat. Right? Because for the longest time, she didn't know that our names were Pat and Grace, right? She's like, oh, Pat, right? And so she's calling me Pat. I'm like, no, Tabby, you don't approach me that way. You have a special relationship with me. You call me Daddy, okay? You have that right. She can approach me as her father. And we can approach God and just say God or King or Creator, and we can come, and all of those things are true, but I really think there's something deeper about coming to Him and saying, Father. There's a depth there that we can have that Muslims and Jews and other religions, they would not dare say. You talk to any Muslim, they'll, they'll never say, no, that's too intimate. We can come and say, Father. And because of that deep basis, we can have deep relationship. And what gives us the right to approach God as our Father? John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the Bible says, if you're not familiar with what the Bible says, the Bible says that by nature, we are all children of wrath. We're not friends with God naturally. That just means it's natural for us to rebel against God. It's in our nature. Why do we just naturally want to rebel against God? When God tells us to do something, why do we naturally want to do the opposite? Because it's in our nature. And therefore, rebellion against God is natural. But Romans says that while we were still weak, while we were enemies of God, He loved us and He died for us so that He could forgive us of our sins. And this invitation has now went out to the world. You're not naturally just therefore accepted. You have to respond to that invitation with repentance and faith. And what happens when you respond with repentance and faith, repentance just means turning away from your sin. You're sorry for your sin. I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn away from my sin. I'm going to turn towards Jesus. It's one act. You're turning away from something and you're turning towards something. You're letting go of something and you're grabbing something else, okay? You're going to turn in faith and repentance to Christ. And what happens? You're not just forgiven of your sins. That's awesome. You're not just given eternal life. But you are now adopted into the family of God. Because the judge got off the judge's chair and he went and was judged for us. Therefore, now he says, call me father. That's called the doctrine of adoption, where we are now children of God. And if you want to pray supernaturally, you need to first understand that because of what Jesus has done, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Did you ever think about that? Why do we always say in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name? And where is that in the Lord's Prayer? I would say it's implicit. It's there. It's, in the, it's assumed when you say Father, because we come to the Father in Jesus' name. 
Because of what Jesus has done, he has given us access to God. Therefore, we now have a relationship that can be restored with God, just like in the garden where Adam and Eve, before the fall, they walked and they talked and they had a free access and communication because of Jesus Christ, who's our high priest. We don't need a pope. We don't need anything like that. We just need Jesus. We can now have a restored relationship, a friendship with God where we walk and we talk with him. And if you understand that because of what Jesus has done, the cosmic Lord of the universe has become our Father, the all-powerful God, infinite, transcendent power, is in love with you with a fatherly, parental love, that's the engine of prayer. I'm sure there's families where, ah, I'm sure there's families where they adopt children and it, it's, we just know intuitively this is wrong. They adopt children and maybe they, they treat their natural children better than their adopted children. Okay? I'm sure there's families and there's examples like that. Okay? But don't we know that's wrong? Can we, we just know there's something wrong about that. What the Bible says, and Jesus prays this, that because of our adoption, the Father loves us just as much as he loves his natural son, Jesus Christ. Where do I get that? In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for us, and uh, what he's praying is that, Father, would you love them even as you love me? Even as you love me. We can approach God as Father on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that's been applied to us. It's on the basis of what Christ has done. And if you pray in Jesus' name, you have the right to freely, com- freely communicate with God our Father, approaching the throne of grace with confidence. How can you tell if you're approaching God as Father or as Landlord? There's a simple way to tell. How do you respond when your prayers are not answered? What happens? When our prayers are not answered, maybe your prayer life will be cold and it will be angry because what you're doing is saying, I've paid my rent. I deserve this from you. And so there's a distance there. Or you'll be guilty and anxious saying, God, I, I, I haven't been paying my rent. And so, God, I know he's not going to answer. And you're a tenant. It's business. It's based on your performance. God, come into my life and be my landlord. And if that's the case, if that's the basis of our relationship, of course our, cold, our prayer life is going to be cold and empty and impersonal and mechanical, always about my failures. Here's how you pray. And this is what Jesus says. You start with the doctrine of adoption and everything else flows out from there. You think about that. And you come to God on the basis of him being your father and you being his child. And then, I'll just blow through this, what happens if that's the case, you start praying like a child. If I had one piece of advice where I have like 10 seconds to talk to someone, like here's how you should pray, I would say pray like a child. Pray like a child. No babbling, no eloquence, not a performance, not business. Mark 10 and Matthew 18, Jesus lists up the child as an example. Come to God like a child with a childlike heart, not a professional. Not a professional prayer, okay? Is it prayer or prayer, okay? Come to God and pray without faking it. Children, like my my kids don't know how to fake it. Or Tabby does a little bit, right? Okay? (laughs) Starting to learn. Okay? As we get older, we, like, as we get older, this is why I like working with kids and middle schoolers. And then when I get to high school ministry, I'm like, oh, you know, because they start, they start learning how to play the game. 
When you get to college, it's just like we start learning how to put on a mask, put on a show, play the system. But children come as they are. They don't fake it. They speak their minds. They come with their brokenness, their runny noses. They don't try to clean themselves up. They come in their messiness and their wandering, and it's the real them. Pray like a child, not like a tenant. You know, I, because of the nature of my relationship with my tenant, good guy, he's a good guy, but I hate it when he calls me. Please don't call me. Leave me alone because I know based on our relationship, if he calls me, I have to do something for him. He doesn't call me and just be like, hey, how are you? Actually, this guy, is, he's a nice guy, right? So he's like, hey, hope you're having a good day. I'm like, what's the catch? All right. By the way, this needs to be replaced. Ah, I knew it, right? (laughs) He's not doing anything wrong, by the way. That's just the nature of our relationship, okay? But I'm like, leave me alone. I'm like the best tenant I don't hear from, right, for a year. And they just pay the rent automatically, right? I don't say that to my daughter, though. I'm like, tell me about your day. I just want to know everything about her. I want her to just tell me everything. And then I'm always like, how was it? What did you do at school? Like, who's your friends, you know? But as we get older, we get so grown up and we stop approaching God like children and, and we just get too grown up for the gospel. We get too grown up to be like amazed by the fact that we get to call God our Father. And again, don't, let me clarify, let me put a disclaimer there. Many of us, if you come from broken families, you know, the picture of father has been tainted by our earthly, fa- our earthly father, but our heavenly father is not like that. Perfect in love, always available, always patient, always teaching us. But we just get too grown up for that baby stuff, that youth group stuff, that VBS stuff, that retreat stuff. But I, you know, I always like... I hope, I see certain relationships between fathers and daughters, and I'm like, man, I want that. I hope when I'm like, when I'm like 70, my daughter is holding my hand, like when I walk around the market. Micah, I'm like, no, no, you don't need to hold my hand, okay? <laughs> like, you're, you're, you know, but I hope that she's a, I have a type of relationship with her when I'm like 70, like, hey, like she's not embarrassed to hold my hand. Jesus, again, points out people who are adults, who have childlike faith, they're the example. They're not afraid of simple trust in God, of holding his hand. And Jesus constantly points to them, look at this guy, look at his faith, look at how he asks. Look at this woman over here, look at this widow. Pray like them, ask like them. Pray like a child, pray simply, ask like a child, believe like a child. Not on the basis of business, but on the basis of family. Because the difference between that is one is cold and mechanical, the other is warm, confident, personal, loving, secure. Don't run through the fatherhood of God when you pray. Don't go on until you get that. I think we just need to take a moment before we pray to just remember who we're praying to, our Father. And he's a father that takes pleasure in our asking, in our conversation, in our sharing. He's not displeased with you. Do you see that? He loves you even as he loves Christ. He's not frowning at you. He's eager to hear and to respond. He delights in his children as he delighted in Christ. And he loves talking to his kids. That's the basis of prayer. 
That's how we're called to approach God. Second point, the purpose of prayer. And it'll get shorter. The points will get shorter, okay? The purpose of prayer. And I, and I think there's many different purposes, but I'm going to argue this is the main purpose of prayer. It's to experience awe and intimacy with God. It's to have a heart-to-heart with God. To see Him and know Him better. Our Heavenly Father. It's about the relational aspect first. Ephesians 1, 17 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And you can make a point that, yeah, prayer is to accomplish kingdom business. That's true. We want the kingdom come. Our, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the kingdom to come forward or to move forward, to advance. But I think there's a reason why that comes after our Father. We think Christianity is about forgiveness of sins and our judge and it's fire insurance and all of these different things. But what it's really about, it's, it opens up a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's what the goal is there. To have a heart relationship, a heart-to-heart, to love Him with your heart, mind, emotions, actions, your strength, everything. Prayer is both awe and intimacy with God our Father. It's intimacy with the infinite. And this is, I think, what we deep down long for. Experience, intimacy. We're searching for it. And one author says, God doesn't want you to pray just to get things from God, but as a way to get more of God himself. Like, what does that mean? We see it all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to be in your presence. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David definitely prayed about other things, but what he means here at the very least is that nothing is better than the presence of God. To taste and see that the Lord is good. To experience that. Because I can describe to you, oh, this this meal, this meal is really good, but you have to experience it. You have to taste it. You have to take it in yourself. And I think that's experience is in prayer. Prayer is what gets the truth of God's word deep into our souls and ignites it. We want truth. We want spirit. We want doctrine. And we should want experience. The Bible puts it, prayer is taking the hold, like in, in the Bible times. It's like ancient people, if they want to get close to someone, they would like grab their cloak or they would cling on to them. In modern days, we embrace, we hug to show someone love, to have that type of intimacy. And I won't read it all for us, but Ephesians three fourteen through 19, it talks about how we want to experience God's love and power in our inner being through the Spirit. There's this level of communion, closeness that's supposed to be there. That's what he's praying for. He's not just praying, oh, I hope you'll learn this. Oh, I hope you have this knowledge. Rather, he's saying, in your inner being, through his spirits, Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you may have the fullness of God, he later says. I want you to experience his love. That's it. I want you to experience the fullness of God in you. Romans 8, 15 through 16, look at this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God is trying to convince you, like persuade you, 
He's trying to, he's a testimony. He's a witness to your heart saying, you're a child. Do you get that? And he wants you to have that emotional experience where you cry out, Abba, Father. That's supernatural prayer. When you're experiencing your adoption. He's enabling us to approach and cry out to God as our loving Father because oftentimes God will feel far. Truth will feel cold. He's our landlord. It's impersonal. And he's saying, I want you to experience the warmth. We all know there are times when God just feels far, when God doesn't feel close. We believe, but we don't see his nearness. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, it describes this experience of just longing for God. And it's a picture of a deer who is like dying of thirst. And he he or she comes down to the river and he finds the river to be dry. And the psalmist here is saying, like, I'm like the deer and God is like the dry riverbed and my soul thirsts for God. And it's not like he's lost his relationship with God, but the presence isn't there. He doesn't feel God is there in a personal relationship. He feels spiritually dry in a drought. The purpose of prayer is Psalm 62, uh, 63, verse 2 to 3. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Behold, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. To look at God and experience his power and believe in his love. This is a spiritual experience of God's reality. And there is a mystical and emotional element to this experience. Mystical meaning mysterious. And immediately, maybe, I know in some of our hearts, immediately we've put up our guards already. Because we've seen abuses of such subjective experiences. Understandable. But don't use those extreme to exclude emotional experience as part of the Christian life. Andrew Murray, I have a quote here, and I really like this quote. Um, Is it up there? He says this, It is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith, of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. I love that phrase here. Intelligent mysticism. That's it. I think that's what we're missing. It's an encounter with God that involves the mind and the heart. It's doctrine and truth filled with power and experience. It's the Holy Spirit enabling and putting our theology on fire where we'll cry out, Abba, Father. What's the problem with like a lot of the overly mystical experiences? From what I see, oftentimes they disconnect the mind and the heart. You go to a retreat and there's all these experiences and people are like, I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm doing all these things. You can't even hear them. You can't even really encourage them. They've turned their brains off. Pure emotion. And a warning against that type of extremism, mysticism, is fair. But prayer is a personal encounter with God and that will have a level of mystery and awe and experience and wonder, won't it? That's what I see in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. It's this truth on fire. And the mystic, 
continuing the quote, says, The mystic wants strictly to attend to God, not to words and ideas about God. Rationality is seen as a limitation, a barrier between the heart and God. Yet Paul calls Christians to keep their rationality as they pray. I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. That's from Tim Keller. Here's another test to see if we approach God on the basis of father or Lord, uh, father or landlord. Do you only pray when there's external pressure? That's okay. That's where we all start. But you're living as a tenant. Again, my tenant only calls me when there's some kind of pressure, there's some kind of issue, and that's okay. I know it, it's business. But we use God to get to our goals. And if we only pray when we're in trouble, then what happens when you're not in trouble? You've lost the motivation to pray. But if the primary purpose of prayer is to experience awe and intimacy with the infinite, then you have reason to pray regardless of your circumstances. There's an internal motivation to pray even when there's no external pressure to pray. That's from Tim Keller. There's an internal motivation to pray, even when there's no external pressure to pray. When we go to God in the beginning of the relationship, when you're first starting out with God, you usually go because you're hoping he'll give you something. I want this in life. I want this problem to be solved. I want meaning. I want my family to be healed. I'm lonely. I'm searching for God. That's natural. That's understandable. But that by itself is not seeking God. You're seeking what God can give you. You want him to give you a certain life. But when you start to experience God and grow in your faith, maybe a little bit at a time, does he say, like, you're uh, giving me this is better than life. Giving me a new job is better than life. Giving me uh, a, a wife is better than life. No, he, he says, the psalmist says, David says, your love is better than life. If I have God, if I have God's love, and we value God for who he is, not just for what he can give, I have life. Jonathan Edwards says a true sign, a sign of true spiritual experience, he's just like this OG church father, that, you know, you have no idea who that is, right? A sign of true spiritual experience is that you become satisfied with God for who he is and not just for the benefits that he gives you. In our service here, in our worship service, I want something special to happen to encounter God's love and his grace and his power. It's not so that I can walk outside and be like, hey, did you learn something? No, but in in the moment of the service, to encounter God's grace and to experience his presence. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I'm not afraid of that type of experience. I pray that you'll have it. And the first thing you learn when you try to pray is that, man, we're pretty empty. We're pretty empty. And, you know, all these warnings against mysticism are crucial, but, man, maybe we've lost something because we've gone to such an extreme. When prayer is supposed to regularly, I mean, hopefully, at a certain point, regularly lead to a personal encounter with God. Our Father. 
And when that happens, that will lead to praise and adoration. And if your prayer life is composed of 80% praise, you'll be okay. You'll be able to handle any circumstances. Isn't it interesting that Paul never prays, get me out of prison. He never prays for a change in circumstances. He prays for more of God's presence. Because if he has more of God's presence, he can handle any circumstance. He prays that he would experience God, that we would experience God. I think there are times where I'll pray, and I'm so worked up, I'm so anxious, I'm stressed out, and I just, <laughs> I just focus on my problems and the prayers, and honestly, afterwards, I don't feel better. Where is this supernatural peace that Philippians 4 talks about? I just feel more stressed. And I wasn't actually praying to my father. I was so focused on my problem that this was basically a self-therapeutic exercise. It was not actually me and another. It was just me trying to talk my way out of this situation. And then I realized I can't and I don't feel better. I'm not talking to God. I'm not spending time with God. I'm self-medicating. Psalm 13.2 gives us a picture of this. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? That's what happens when you're trying to solve your own problems that you just can't solve. How did Job overcome his suffering? Was it because God, you know, in the suffering, he like changed all the circumstances? After he did, he sort of restored it. But he still had all that loss, but he restored it. But during that time, God was like, you need to go back to step one. You just need to see who I am. And at the end, Job is like, oh, I've heard you with my ear. I've seen you with my eye, and I repent. When your prayer is only focused on asking, give me this day my daily stuff, then there there won't be anything supernatural about it. But when it's focused on praising and adoring, then it's a heart-to-heart. The purpose of prayer is to experience that awe and intimacy with God, our Father. Third point, the learning of prayer. The learning of prayer. Uh, how do we learn how to pray? Okay, There's a couple different answers. You could learn how to pray by watching other people pray. People model prayer for you. But, you know, how do we know what to say? If you're new to Christianity, how do you know what to say? And for years, when Tabby was born, I talked to her. I talked to her. You know, I speak to her, I read to her, you know. And one day, something crazy started to happen. She started talking back to me. Not in a bad way, just talking back like we're having a conversation. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy, right? That didn't like, it's not like that makes me love her more, but it added a dimension of depth to our relationship where now I'm like, we can have a real conversation. It's so weird. We're at the park yesterday and I see Tabby with this other like four-year-old and they're talking to each other. I'm like, what are they talking about? (laughs) Right? What are they saying? I want to know, right? And they're just like, you want to go on the slide with me, right? But they're actually talking. I'm just like, wow, it's a conversation. How did she learn how to speak? She was first spoken to. She was first spoken to. And this is why this sermon follows last week's sermon. This is why a sermon on prayer is actually very much a sermon on Bible reading. In the same way, we learn as we're spoken to. 
prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word, which becomes a supernatural full encounter with him. Prayer begins with the Bible. If you don't know what to say to God, it's probably because you don't know what he said to you. A deep prayer life starts by first hearing. And I'm going to take a couple quotes out of Tim Keller's book on prayer where he says, and he's talking about this guy named Eugene Peterson. Okay, He's quoting Eugene Peterson. Language is spoken into us. We learn language only as we are spoken to. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. Then slowly, syllable by syllable, we acquire the capacity to answer. Mama, Papa, bottle, blanket, yes, no. Not one of these was a first word. All speech is answering speech. We were all spoken to before we spoke. And he gives his commentary on this. It is a f- Therefore, essential to the practice of prayer to recognize what Peterson calls the overwhelming previousness of God's speech to our prayers. That's like not helpful, okay? It's a weird, okay? It's a weird phrase, okay? No one talks that way, that way okay? But this theological principle has practical implications or consequences. I'm, I'm changing the words. Um, it means that our prayer should arise out of immersion in the scriptures. We should plunge ourselves into the sea of God's language, the Bible. We should listen, study, think, reflect, and ponder the scriptures until there's an answering response in our hearts and minds. It, be, it may be one of shame or of joy or of confusion or of appeal, but that response to God's speech is then truly prayer and should be given to God. God spoke to us. He was not stingy. He gave us a library. He gave us a book filled with his words. When we study it, when we listen to it, you will have plenty to say to God. At first, when you pray, it's like any child. You're not going to really know how to pray. You're not going to have much to say to him. You feel like a child talking. You don't have many words okay, or vocabulary, and that's how many of us feel. It feels like a different language. We're talking to a heavenly being. But as we study the Bible, the conversation will start to go both ways. Those who can pray naturally are those who have heard from God in the Bible. When you hear from God exactly what you need, whether it's comfort or rebuke or give me faith or whatever it is, you'll have plenty to say to him. And if you're not hearing from God in the Bible, the problem isn't that he hasn't spoken. The problem is that you've turned your back on him. Your eyes are closed or your ears are closed. You can't have a conversation with someone when one person is not listening. That's what it's like when we come to the Bible with a cold heart or a hurried heart or a distracted heart. It's like we're meeting someone and saying, let's have a deep conversation in 30 seconds when my ears are closed. But when I face him, when I talk to him, when, my face is, when we're looking at each other face to face and he speaks to me and when that happens, more just naturally comes out. John 15, 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You hear God's word and you're really listening, then just ask, just talk, because you're going to have a heavenly mindset. You'll learn how to talk to God as you hear him talk to you. God has initiated a conversation with you. He initiated it. And I like what Eugene Peterson says about this. He points out how the first psalm, you know, in the Bible, there's a bunch of psalms, okay? Right in the middle of the Bible, they're like prayers and songs. The first psalm isn't necessarily a prayer. It's, it's about meditation. And that first psalm's prime place at the beginning of the book is not an accident. It was edited. It was meant to be that way. It was intentionally put there. And Psalm 1 is the entrance to the rest of the psalms. And Eugene Peterson says, the text of the Psalms teaches us to pray 
uh, t- teaches us to pray doesn't begin with prayer. We're not ready. We're wrapped up in ourselves. We're knocked around by the world. Psalm 1 is pre-prayer getting us ready as we meditate on God's word. This doesn't mean, by the way, like if I'm going to pray before the sermon, I have to like read a Bible verse every single time. Okay, it's not saying it always has to be like Bible prayer, Bible prayer. But in general, as you come regularly to the Bible, just like a sponge, every once in a while, it just needs to be immersed in water in order to do its work. If you want to learn how to pray, you need to spend time with the Bible on a regular basis. Let the Bible guide your prayers. Let him speak to you. Not just a one-way conversation. I think one of the mistakes we've made and what this book did for me, Tim Keller's book on prayer, it just really showed me how much I had separate the disciplines of prayer and the word. But our daily prayers need to be more biblical. And if you're reading the text, if you're reading the Bible, whatever part of the Bible you're in, you could turn it into a songbook of praise or prayer. Any part of the text. You turn it into a book of thanksgiving, a book of confession, a book of petition, a book of praise, any part. You could pray that part and apply it to your life. Every single word, every single paragraph, every single sentences, sentence, every promise, every warning, every command, let it flow into prayer. Either thanks or praise or, uh, or uh, confession or petition or asking, whatever it is. You don't know what to say? Then use the words that have already been provided for you. And I think when you have that type of like deep prayer life where it's like balanced, it's diverse, it's not just like I go to this person, we have the same talk every day. Every day we just talk about sports. We just talk about sports. We talk about sports. No, we could talk about all these different things. That's a more deep relationship. And when you pray the scriptures, your conversations will be varied, not just asking. You'll find yourself saying all the time thanks or praise or help or sorry or you're in awe. And there's so many different ways to respond. If you want to learn how to pray, first hear what God has said to you. Fourth point, last point. You know, defining prayer is very easy. Ultimately, I can complicate it, but it's talking to God, our Father. But it's not easy. There are dozens of reasons why it might be hard for us. We live in a world where we're constantly distracted. You guys know, have you guys heard of the, uh, the song Amazing Grace? Okay, probably the most popular hymn in, in the United States. That, guy, uh, that song was written by John Noon. And this is what he had to say about prayer. Our ability to pray is so weak that if we are sitting in a room trying to pray, I am overmatched by the buzzing of a fly. Right? And I'm like, oh. That comforted me, right? That's John Newton, okay? And especially for us, where we're so used to being entertained, we're so used to multitasking, we're so used to being on our phones, our phones have like stolen so much of our spiritual life, it feels like a waste of time, we need to do all these things, so easily distracted. Or we're uncomfortable, we feel like we're talking to air, we're talking to ourselves, we're confused, like why do we pray? We're just prideful, I don't need to pray, I'm fine on my own, we're just cynical, is God even there? And every single time we pray, it seems like there's a conspiracy to like try to stop it. If that's you, then we're in the same boat. And Paul says, labor with me in prayer. 
labor with me in prayer, work with me at prayer. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is acknowledging, like, hey, it doesn't come easy for any of us. So we got to work at this. We have to sweat. Labor with me in prayer. And it's like, I get the disciples where it's like, they kept falling asleep, right? They kept falling asleep. Could you not keep watch with me for an hour? I'm like, an hour? That's a long time, right? I'm sympathetic, right? Okay. How many of us, we try to pray and like one minute later, we're knocked out, okay? You can't be too hard on the disciples. And Jesus was not too hard on them. Jesus believed it was necessary for him to teach to teach how to pray. It doesn't come natural. It takes learning. It takes wrestling all night sometimes to really pray. And that's how any relationship is. Any relationship takes hard work. Falling in love. Oh, that's easy. That's the fun part. But if you want to turn a crush into something deep and wonderful and lasting, it'll take work. I'm sure none of, you of us, none of you are naive enough to actually say, but like, oh, but, but we love each other, right? It, we'll, we'll get through it. We love each other. It's just we have that great feeling. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> we'll see, right? <laughs> we'll see, right? It takes work. And if we're being honest, maybe we like criticize prayer. We were frustrated with our prayer life, but have we actually taken the time to pray and discipline ourselves? It will start as a duty. But the goal is to turn it into a delight. It will feel mechanical. When you sit down and you meet someone new, you talk to someone for the first time, it will feel unnatural. But how much more comfortable is it after you spend a couple hours with each other talking? We'll never outgrow our need. I don't know any Christian deep enough to outgrow that we've outgrown our need for just discipline perseverance God may you know you may have spontaneous times in the car where it's just like man I feel the peace of God but we need that discipline to undergird that passion create some space in your life for intimacy to happen you know a date night for a couple or hanging out with your friends it doesn't create intimacy it just makes room for it You need time to grow. You need time where you don't just get together and you're multitasking, you're on your phone all the time. Time together without an agenda where you get to know each other. This creates an environment where intimacy can happen, where closeness can happen. And I would say don't go about trying to run the marathon right now, like uh, trying to run a sprint. It's more about consistency. Spend 20 minutes a day for a month and see what happens. Just try that. Enroll in the school of prayer. Let me give you, this is just a template, um, something I've adapted from different books, and is, a lot of it is from Tim Keller's book, but a template of what like a devotional life can look like, okay? And don't think, I'm not trying to make this legal, you got to do this for this, and this amount of time, and it's God's rules that you got to spend this amount of time. It's not like that, okay? But just take what you can from this, okay? This is not um, like a, a rule, okay? When you go to God in prayer, take some time to just think about who you're going to talk to. Okay? Then start with the opening prayer. God, open up my eyes to see wondrous things in your all. Then soak yourself in God's word, praying as you're reading. And then, this is a missing step. I think we go from 
Bible reading to prayer and we don't do meditation in between where we just think about it, we ponder it, we savor it, we question it, we just take it with us like you would a love letter from uh, someone you have a crush on. You just think about it, you analyze every word. It's just like, man, you know, what can I, you soak up everything you can from it. And then pray in response to what you just heard. And here's where I want to add, have some free prayer. Where the Spirit may inspire, you may be like, man, I can't get this person out of my mind. I just need to pray about this person. Don't be so stiff, so structured, where you can't just sort of wander a little bit. That's just like a, a, an example of like what a devotional can look like, right? And for me, and like my, and normally, it's just like, oh, read the Bible, pray, done, right? And then I don't take, if I was going to add a step, that's where the uh, Bible says, take it with you for the rest of the day. Take that truth with you for the rest of the day and meditate on it. And then, uh, I, don't, I forgot to put it in there. And then at the end, I would add sing. Sing. Sing a new song. Just praise. That's, again, how I measure whether I've really soaked myself in God's word. Do I want to praise him for it? Like, sing it. Let me land this plane, Okay. Oh, good thing Rand has trained you well, okay? (laughs) What I hope you got from the last two weeks of sermons, I, 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 I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel condemned. But I hope you feel what the Bible, no, I mean, what, uh, what I'll call a holy discontent. I hope you feel hungry, Okay? I hope you actually get a sense of your emptiness. I, I read all these verses on prayer, or people's famous quotes on prayer, and I'm just like, ah, oh, they, they just make me feel bad. Like one famous quote, one very, very famous quote, what you are on your knees before God, that is all you are, right? I'm just like, oh, nothing, right? Because right? prayer really is a good like, barometer of how you're doing with, with God, Okay. And prayer can make us feel so small and helpless. And I fully, fully confess to you that I am an absolute, absolute hypocrite for being up here preaching on this. There's a reason why preachers don't pray, uh, preach on prayer that often because it just makes us feel inadequate. But the first thing we need to learn, I said this earlier, when we pray is just how spiritually empty we are. And don't get used to being starved. We get used to being starved that we don't even recognize anymore. We don't recognize that our souls are impoverished until we really start to pray with like this holistic way. If you're feeling like God doesn't feel near, if that bothers you, if you have this sense of God's absence, if you feel isolated or even cold, and you have a hunger and desire to run, Let me tell you something. I think God is touching your life. Run to him, not run away from him, okay? If you have this deep sense of like, I'm hungry, I want it to be filled, a longing for him, you may walk away from that thinking, I feel discouraged, God has left me. You feel dissatisfied or like, you know, I'm done for. If you feel like, man, I wish I had more faith. I wish I was closer to God. I wish I was more faithful to him. I want to be closer to him, but I'm just not right now. And there's level of dissatisfaction in you where it's just like, 
it, it, there's something there where it's like, I know I need to grow in this. If I sense that hunger and that appetite where it's like, I want this, then I actually think that's a sign that God is touching your life. Not that he's left you. Now, if you're saying, I don't believe this, I don't care about this, that's a different issue. But when I hear desire, where I've, God feels far, I'm, when I hear that in people, I'm not discouraged by it. Because it shows you have an appetite and hunger, and I hope you're motivated, you have this holy discontent. But it will take time. Don't throw out your faith if your life doesn't change overnight. Don't throw out your faith if you don't see fruit, fruit pop up overnight. Christ, Christianity, it, it, we're Christians, it, it's like farmers. It takes time. It's gradual. Christ-likeness is very gradual and it's working. And you don't understand how it's going to work in God's timing, but you need to trust that he will deliver you. He will grow you. He is our Father. And he wants to give you the best. He's not trying to jip you. Don't feel guilty, but I do pray that you'll have this holy discontent where you'll know I'm accepted and I'm loved and therefore I want to pursue him. That's a good thing. Are we ever to be satisfied? Like, oh, I'm, I, I've, I've arrived. No, we always know. We have way more to go. But Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitude says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be satisfied one day. Take your word. Take the Bible. Hear God's voice as you read it. And talk to him, not in business terms, but as his child, whom he loves. Talk to your Heavenly Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, teach us how to pray. Enroll us in the school of prayer. Not out of guilt or condemnation. This is what religious people do. This is what we're supposed to do. Not in business terms. But knowing how we're loved. Knowing how we're accepted in Christ. Give us the desire to work out our salvation, to talk to you, to pursue you, to seek you, to experience you, to encounter you. So often, God, we come to you and it's this intellectual relationship or a business relationship. But God, we just want to come to you as your children. We just want to share our hearts with you. So Lord, help us. We know there's an emptiness in our souls and we long for it to be filled.
was something that will last, an eternal relationship, eternal life. And so God, with Paul, we, we pray now that you would open up our eyes to experience your great love. That you would strengthen us in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we would experience the fullness of God, the fullness of who you are. Would you give us more of yourself? Help us to see and gaze upon your beauty, to know you more. That's a supernatural act, God. We can't do that on our own. We can't, we can't just be smart enough to, uh, or just to eloquent enough, God, but we want to come with simple faith and trust and trust you, our Heavenly Father. So thank you for your word. Thanks for this time. Lord, would you speak to us? And may your spirit enable us to cry out back to you, Abba, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.